little bit about our church. There's three things that we believe, three things that we hold on to, and we find them in Scripture. The, the Christian life is a life of joy. It's a life of peace. It's a life of living from the strength that God gives us. It's a life of comfort and hope. And it starts with our understanding that what has happened to us and what we've done does not define us. That there is a hope that we have in the midst of our brokenness that not only heals that brokenness, but sets our eyes not on how messed up we are, but on the goodness of God who has saved us. Does that make sense? So you are allowed to be right where you are. You have enough runway with Jesus to learn, to grow, to struggle with your doubts, to be on the fence about things, and God will be faithful to you to help your brain and your heart and give you all the evidence that you need to trust him. So you are welcome here, just as you are. The second thing that happens with Jesus is that as we start to trust him, well, as we see this hope and this future and we're accepted and loved, we begin to learn how to trust him. So that's what we believe. The second thing is we believe that we are called to trust our risen Savior. And trust is a relationship word. That means that we engage, we talk, we listen, we follow directions. And there's going to be so many circumstances in your life where you're going to feel like you're not enough for that. Where you're going to doubt whether or not this trusting God thing really works. And that's okay too. God is faithful to you even in the midst of your waffling back and forth. And as we learn to walk with Jesus, as we experience his presence, we learn more and more that we can put more of our weight upon him and that he's actually got us. Amen? Third thing we believe is that we believe that we're called to bring restoration. That what we get to be involved with is we get to create a brand new family, a, a brand new city, a, a brand new, we'll use that old word, kingdom. Where, where the way that we operate as a church family, the way that we have relationships with one another, the, the, the fact that we would define our interactions by love and forgiveness and, and grace and mercy, that that kingdom is going to then overflow from us and it's destined to spill out all across our neighborhood and our schools in the businesses and the places that we spend our time. Yes, even the golf course. And what that means for you, and this is what's amazing about following Jesus, is that what God says is that the gates of hell can't withstand it. That as you love and forgive and are kind and generous, that literally that destroys the darkness and evil we see all around us. And that's your calling. No matter how old or young, how rich or poor, how much you know, how disqualified you feel, it doesn't matter. You have the ability right now, the calling right now, to bring restoration wherever you are. So that's what we believe as a church. So can I pray for us? Heavenly Father, is. We open your word. I pray protection upon this time. I pray against everything opposed to Christ that would be seeking to put us to sleep, to distract us, to have us thinking about the grocery list or the to-do list or what are we going to do this afternoon or what has happened this last week. God, we want to be here right now. We love you, Lord. Protect us. Fill this place with your spirit. We give you permission, Holy Spirit, to speak directly to us. We really need you to show us. And all God's people said. So these three things, hope, trust, and restoration, they have a choice attached to it. We kind of talked about this last week, but let's read this thing that we read every week together 
and I'm going to tie it to last week's sermon real quick. Ready? A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God to be, to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. Now, we started last week's introduction to the book of Joshua by talking about this powerful energy that forms the shape of our lives. And this powerful energy isn't what we know, and it's not necessarily what we believe. The powerful energy that forms the shape of our present and future lives is what we love. So last week I gave you this quote by James K.A. Smith in his wonderful book, You Are What You Love. It goes like this. Read this with me. We are what we love because we live toward what we want. And so I talked with you last week about this really powerful question that kind of helps reveal the significance of this statement. And that question is this, what do you really want? So I was talking with a, a new visitor, a friend, Paul, and he, I said, do you want to have coffee? And he says to me last week, I don't know, what do you want? So that was, that was good, I appreciate that. <laughs> I said, I want to have coffee. And he said, okay, let's have coffee. <laughs> what do you want? What, what do you love? Because you're going to live towards what you want. You're going to live towards what you love. And it's interesting. You can, you can kind of look at the daily rhythms and practices of your life, and that will reveal what you love and what you want. And that means that if you change the daily rhythms of your life and practices of your life, you can actually reshape what you want and what you love. Trevor, you read my mind. Thank you so much. Our janitor, Trevor, come on. You get a glass of water, you get a round of applause. My wife makes an announcement, she gets a round of applause. It's fantastic. I love this place. So that means that the choice to change, if you want to shape your future, your present and your future, the choice is less about changing your mind. I mean, that needs to happen. It involves changing your beliefs. That needs to happen too. But actually, the most powerful thing that you can do is to start changing your practices. Does that make sense? Following Jesus cannot be separated from, from practices, meaning that the practices, the, the things that we actually do are essential to, to follow Jesus. And they're really straightforward and simple. Talk to God. That's called prayer. Read his word. That's called Bible study. Worship. Congratulations. You checked that one off your list this week, right? Worship every day. Forgive. Be generous. Make a difference in someone's life. These are the practices which will lead you closer to Jesus because they are going to shape what it is that you want and love. So how do we begin? Well, change, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, requires two actions kind of simultaneously. Change requires you to start the practice that you, that you want to change your life. So that's the first thing that you do, is that is it you start doing the good thing. How many of us want to be more in shape? How many of us want to have a different shape than we currently have? How many of us want that but don't do anything about it? So this is what we think about, about change. What we think about is we just say, well, if I just, if I just wish it, if I just believe it, if I just agree that I don't like my, my particular shape, I have one ab right now. I'm hoping for more. Maybe I'll get two one day. But what I do is I really want that. And what I mean by want that is that I really think about it a lot, but I don't do anything different. Does that make sense? So, so what we think is, what we think, 
change happens often is, is like, well, I'll just want it more. I'll desire for it more. Not helpful. All that's going to do is create guilt and shame and will keep you stuck. What you do is you do something about it, and then that doing displaces all of the activity that you would otherwise not want to do. So that's the first thing you do. You start doing the thing that will bring you life. And the second thing that you do simultaneously, this is a combination move, is that you start to point out and name in your life the things that you are doing that are no longer helpful. Does that make sense? So James K.A. K. Smith, in that wonderful book, You Are What You Love, he talks about the practices that we participate in that we don't necessarily even realize how, like, we're forming our hearts, but also there's some things that we do that form us whether we know it or not. Does that make sense? And he gives an example of going to the mall, but what, what's a mall? I haven't been in a mall in 25 years. So what's a more poignant example is social media. Did you know that Harvard and Yale just came out with a study that depression and anxiety among our teenage and college population, uh, basically from 24 years under, is the highest it's ever been across all of history? And the reason why, they've made a direct correlation to social media. And if we're in junior high or high school or college, you understand this, right? I mean, does anybody post an Instagram photo about their worst day ever? Today, I'm feeling blah. Today, I'm eight pounds overweight. Today, my pants don't fit. Today, I got a C plus on my paper. No, everybody, what they do is that they give a picture, they give a, they, 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 they present an image in which they're eating the most fabulous food, they're having the most incredible experiences, they're happy, they're jumping and frolicking on the beach. They're, I've seen women do all the right right? So that their jawline, they don't have the double chin, their beard doesn't show, you know, like, it's important if you're a woman. And, and then they take the picture, right? Like you're, what are you doing? What's this? But they do it. What's weird is when you see guys do that as well. So researchers from Yale and Harvard and Stanford, they've all said that if you spend more than an hour a day online, on social media, that you are no longer shaping and influencing your friends' lives because that's what you want to do, right? You want to connect with your friends. Now you are actually being shaped by a culture in, that causes depression and anxiety. There is a direct link between more than one hour online and depression and anxiety. It skyrockets. Ask people who've been off Facebook for a month, how do they feel? You feel much better. Or three years. <laughs> Once a year I go on and say, see you next year. It's fantastic. Don't contact me on Facebook. I don't, I, I don't even know my password anymore. So what's the solution? How do we begin? We begin by taking a good look at the water that we're swimming in. We, we take a good look at what we're being immersed by, and we ask the question, is this helping me love what I want to love? Are the movies that I'm watching me helping me love who I want to love? Is the way that I view my body, is the way that I view my future, is the way that I view shopping and money, are these helping me love what I really want to love? David Foster Wallace, in his famous address to Kenyan College in the 60s, tells the story of an older fish swimming along one day, and he passes two younger fish, and he says, good morning, boys, how's the water? And the younger fish nod, and then one of the younger fishes looks to the other fish and goes, what the heck is water? to reshape your life, to set your focus on Jesus, to, to form what you love, to be what you really want to love, 
starts with taking a good long look at the water that you're swimming in and starting to identify what's no longer helpful so that you can start putting the practices into your life that feed what you really want to love. Y'all picking up what I'm putting down? So today we're going to talk about a very famous woman in the scripture who discovered that she didn't love what she thought she loved. And she woke up to the water that she was swimming in and she said, this is insanity. I don't want to do this anymore. And she said, I want to love something else. And before we get to this hero of our faith, I want to catch you up to where we are in the book of Joshua. Can I do that? Here we go. Moses has died. The entire generation of Israelites who refused to enter the promised land, that's Numbers 13, I know you memorized that chapter, they've died too. And for 40 years, this ever-growing nation of Israel has slowly moved through the desert of what is now northeastern Egypt and the north part of Saudi Arabia. And stories have spread as travelers for 40 years have encountered this huge, enormous tribe that is wandering through the desert. Have you heard about these Israelites? There's a million of them. They're out on Highway 154, wandering around Oildale and Bakersfield. <laughs> They've been set free by this incredible God. It's amazing. They beat Pharaoh's army. They crossed through the Red Sea. And, and now they're, they're coming here. So Joshua sits with several million people camped out in Santa Maria, just over the bridge on the 101. Every time you drive to Costco or go to the Edwards movie theater or go get barbecue, you see millions of people there and you know exactly who they are. And they're wait, waiting to enter here, the promised land. Amen? So read with me what, jo what God has told Joshua. I'm paraphrasing, but this is what God has told Joshua five times in the matter of one week. Ready? Here we go. Be strong and courageous. Your job is to trust me. Your job is to walk. My job is to win your battles, to never leave you nor forsake you, to give you strength and hope. Your job is keep on loving me with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and move forward into the promises I've given you. That's last week's sermon. So, remember Numbers 13? Good, there's six or seven of you. That, um, Numbers 13 happens 40 years earlier. 40 years earlier, all of Israel is sitting in Santa Maria waiting to come into the promised land. And Moses sends out 12 spies. They come to Grover Beach and they say, these people are maniacs, they're giants. They come to Rio Grande, there's no way we can beat that army. They look up Pismo Beach and they say, we're done for. But two people, two people come back and they say, let's go. Let's do this. We're here. This is God's promised us this land. Let's settle it. And one of those two spies was Joshua himself. So now, it's 40 years later. They're back in Santa Maria again. And this time, Joshua has a decision to make, what am I going to do? Let's read what Joshua does. And I've been dreading this verse for months now. Here we go. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies. <laughs> so let's talk about how to pronounce this Hebrew word. Repeat after me. She. she. Team. Ready? Say so do it again. She, team. It's not shittim. It's she, team. 
But I just, I read this verse three months ago when I was thinking about Joshua, and I thought, I'm, I'm really going to look forward to that day. So Joshua's mom was a nun, and, nun, and he was from the weird place. Anyways, they're, uh, so they're camped out east of the Jordan River, right? East of where Jerusalem is and east of where the current Dead Sea is. And they're going to head west into the Promised Land. And so they're, they're, they're basically in an oasis called Shittim. And so Joshua says this, go look over the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Interesting strategy for two young soldiers. Not surprising. So Joshua says, you know, last time we sent 12 spies and, you know, 10 of them just really wrecked it. I'll send two hand-picked guys. They won't make any mistakes. And so where did the two spies go? They go to Jericho, the big fortified city right over the Jordan River. And sitting at the base of the mountain, that one day Jerusalem will sit upon. Jerusalem is at the bottom, or Jericho is at the bottom of the mountain that Jerusalem sits on. Do you remember that story uh, that Jesus tells about the parable of the Good Samaritan? About how the Good Samaritan helped the guy, the traveler who was beat up on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. All the priests who worked in the temple, they would walk eight and a half miles down the road and they would live in Jericho. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, and her husband, Zachariah, they lived in Jericho. So this is where we are. So the two soldiers, they go to the big fortified city called Jericho, and where do these young soldiers go first? They go to the strip club. <laughs> now, let's assume that these young guys, free from supervision, decide that um, that they are going to start their life as a spy. Let's assume the best. And let's assume that they're good spies. It's actually a brilliant move to go to a whorehouse. Number one, no one's asking questions. Number two, people generally don't give their true names. Number three, there's lots of pillow talk that can be overheard. Number four, if you get to know the lady who runs the house, she probably has more information than anybody else in the city, right? This is the, this is the birthplace of social media, was, was at Rahab's place. So what do we know about Jericho? Um, if you go look up Jericho on Wikipedia, or if you read some of the books that I have in my library, you'll, know, you'll find out this about Jericho and about Rahab. Rahab, based on her name alone, is this, she's from a tribe called the Amorites. Say that with me, the Amorites. And the Amorites settled all over Canaan, which is modern-day Israel, and the Amorites were not good people. Um, they were this nomadic group of shepherds that ate lots of meat and, and, and loved to kill farmers. That's what Amorites did. Um, as a people group, they were totally tribal, which means that each tribe was led by the biggest, baddest warrior who could kill the most guys, and he was called king. That's how tribes work. Pick the most powerful person, and they're in charge. Um, they had no idea how to cultivate the land. They had no idea how to use the technology of their time. And the, basically, the Amorites were landlocked Vikings. You picking up what I'm putting down? They were more adept at destroying and killing than building anything. There is not one Amorite building that remains in existence today, even though they lived as long as the Greeks and the Babylonians and had just as much power and influence as they did. So they didn't build anything. They destroyed things. That was their MO. Um, they, they also uh, worshipped... Um, Baal, and Baal asked you to sacrifice your children as a form of worship. And so these were a group of people that had no problem with violence. They would sacrifice their kids to get Baal to give them good things. This is kind of a lawless people. One ancient Mesopotamian writer, he wrote this, they don't know how to 
build a house. They don't know even what to do with wheat or grain when they harvest it. They don't know how to bury their dead. They're savages. When the prophet Amos um, thought about the Amorites, he said that they're giants. They were so big because they ate so much meat that they towered over everybody else. Vikings. So Jericho is a fortified Amorite town. Does that make sense? This is a town filled with the baddest, meanest, most violent warriors in the region. And Rahab runs a whorehouse in Jericho. There's that bird back again from last week. There's two of them. Paul. Paul, go ahead. I want to see the arms out like this, just like you did last week. It's not working, Paul. You've got to pray harder. Come on. There it is. Good job. Thank you, Paul. So imagine Rahab, she's used to serving a rough-and-tumble clientele, and in come two Israeli spies, you know, trying to pretend to be Amorite soldiers. And let's keep on reading what happens. Ready? Joshua 2, verse 2. The king of Jericho was told... So clearly the two spies were lousy at their job, right? I know where we're going, dude. Let's go to the strip club. Yeah, no one will find it. We're there. And then they show up five minutes later. An Amorite soldier looks out and goes, oh, there are two spies. And he runs out the door. He goes and tells the king. And so the king sends the soldier back to Rahab with a message. Verse 3. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. So let me ask you a question. If you were Rahab, what would you do? I mean, if you defy the king, he's the biggest, baddest warrior in town, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. But every single person who's been entering the city of Jericho for the last couple of months has said, have you seen the group of three million Israelis that are living in Santa Maria? What do you think they're going to do? They're going to come here. So if you were Rahab, you would be thinking, well, you know, we have like 50,000 people in our town versus 3 million. So you do your calculus. So who's going to win? So Rahab hatches a plan. She knows everyone in the city. She knew at the moment the Amorite soldier looked at the two Israeli spies and ran out the door. She knew what was going to happen. And she's been thinking about all of those millions of Jews in Santa Maria for a couple of weeks now. And she says this. Verse 4, actually, she does this. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So as soon as the soldier runs out the door to tattle on the Israeli soldiers, Rahab takes the two Israeli spies and she hides them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. That's a lie. <laughs> At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. <laughs> Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. So obviously she lies. It's a really good lie too. She admits nothing. She points the soldiers and the king in the wrong direction. And there's a little twist at the end. She says, Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. I don't know about you, but I find it odd that Rahab, the person who runs the local whorehouse, is telling the king and, its, and his soldiers what to do. That's, this girl's got some moxie, y'all. Right? She doesn't put up with anything. She's like, mm-hmm, yeah, I know what I'm going to tell these guys. Verse 6, but she had taken the two Israeli spies up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid on the roof. So roofs were made out of flax, and so literally... She's shoving these spies in the roof. It's a, it's a fantastic image. And so the spies are there, and Rahab's like, just relax, I'll be back. 
So the men, these are the Amorite soldiers, the Jericho soldiers. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road. I like it that they obey Rahab. The men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. That's where the Jordan River splits into a bunch of tributaries and you can cross over. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Hours pass. Rahab is thinking. Rahab is pacing. Rahab has this moment. It's a moment that she's been given. These two Israeli spies have come to her. The king no longer suspects her, but now she has a choice to make. And this risk, this choice, is going to change her life, either for the better or for the worse. And this is it for this woman. Read with me. Verse 8. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. So Rahab starts this conversation with an absolutely shocking admission. She speaks Yahweh's name. That word Lord, that should be all caps. That's Yahweh. She says that she knows that Yahweh has given Israel this land. And then she admits that everyone around her is absolutely melting with fear. Why are they melting with fear? Verse 10. Let's read. <clears throat> we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. So everyone for the past 40 years has been talking about this group of Israelis, which keeps on growing, that these former slaves um, that have been rescued by God, that they defeated the most powerful military force on planet Earth, slaves. Slaves. And then the two greatest Amorite warriors, kings, Sihon and Og, these two guys lived where they lived because they also had the power and the military might to defeat Pharaoh. And what did this group of slaves do to the two biggest, meanest, baddest Amorite Viking warlords? They utterly destroyed them. So yeah, everyone is melting in fear. God's ragtag group of slaves utterly destroyed the most powerful military leaders of its day. And there's only one explanation why this could happen. And that's because they had Yahweh on their side. And Rahab knew it. She knew that Yahweh, our God, fought for people who have no voice and no power and were suffering a horrible life. And she could relate. Rahab never wanted to be a prostitute. Her high school guidance counselor didn't say, you know what, I think I have the profession for you. Like she didn't test into this. No one does. No one wants to be a prostitute. There was two situations that could have forced her into it. Number one, her family could have sold her into it to pay off a debt. Or number two, she could have made the horrific decision to volunteer because she wanted her family to eat. Later we'll learn that she wants to save her family. I think it's probably option two. Rahab looked at her starving family and said, the only way that we're going to be able to make money and eat is if I do this thing that, it, that will defile me, that I despise. And then Rahab heard, hears about Yahweh, this God who saves people who are stuck in slavery, this God who rescues people who don't deserve it, this God who loves people who everybody else calls unlovely. 
And now 40 years later, they're in Santa Maria, and there's three million of them, and they're ready to invade. And Rahab says to the soldiers, they're still stuck in the straw. She's whispering to them, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Oh my gosh. Rahab confesses her faith, but this is actually really important. She says a phrase for the second time. Ink and paper aren't cheap back in the day. So anytime a biblical writer repeats a phrase, that's our cue to pay close attention to that phrase. And what's the phrase that's repeated the second time? I'll tell you. <laughs> the phrase that's repeated a second time is that our hearts melted and fear. That's the phrase that's repeated the second time. Now, you got to put yourself in Rahab's shoes. She lives in a culture dominated by violence and strength. She's the victim of it, and at the same time, she's trying to live in the midst of it. But for the first time in her life, she wakes up. She sees that the violence and strength of the Amorite army will be completely destroyed by Yahweh. She sees the fear in her heart and in her people's heart. It's like she woke up and said, this water that I'm swimming in, running a whorehouse, sinning the way that I am, the way that my culture is, defines what is right and good, the way that I've been defining what is right and good, it's all wrong. That's what she wakes up to. Let me ask you a question. Do you know that the water that you're swimming in right now? Are you willing to look at, at what's in your life and say, oh man, this doesn't line up with what you want from me, God. This is poison. And this poison, I, I can't befriend it. I can't excuse it. I can't justify it. I can't say, well, life is hard and so I just need a little bit of it. I actually need to go to war against it. Are you willing to repent? To not just think, oh, that's wrong, but keep on doing it. To not delay obedience, but to actually go to war against the thing that's killing you. Are you willing? Yes, amen. Well, we got two people who are saying yes and amen, and a whole lot of us are going, mm. So now Rahab is going to risk every part of her life. She says, this water that I'm swimming in no longer works. Now I want to swim with Yahweh. David Jackman, uh, author of a wonderful commentary on Joshua, writes this. Either there is faith in the greatness of the Lord and a casting of oneself entirely on his mercy, or there is fear, which determines to resist God's supremacy, challenge his will, and continue to fight against his purposes. Look, um, when God reveals his will to you and says, sweetheart, this is what I want you to do. There is a cost if you resist. Oftentimes what we do when God says, sweetheart, I want you to let this go. I want you to forgive. I want you to stop. I want you to turn your heart. I want you to humble yourself. I want you to get help. Often what we do in that moment is that we say, is that you, God? And our spouse is yelling at us the same thing. Is that you, God? We pray and God speaks to us. You show up to church and your pastor says this really annoying sermon, like I'm saying to you right now, and you say, is that you, God? Yes! God's telling you, Forgive. Stop. It's time to be done with your rebellion. It's time to be done with you trying to control everything. It's not working anymore. 
And if, if you keep on discounting that God is speaking to you, even though he has a megaphone and he's saying, are you ready to listen now? If you keep on discounting that, then you end up becoming like Pharaoh. Pharaoh, plagues came and he went, okay, God, I get it. And he repented after every plague. Read Exodus. He repents after every plague. And then you know what he says? Uh, I don't know. You know, maybe the Nile turning to blood, maybe that was just a freak accident. Or, you know, maybe all the cattle dying, maybe that's just a bad disease. Or maybe the, you know, locusts coming. No, that's just kind of a normal seasonal thing. No big deal. And then he changes his mind. And, and the scripture says that that is Pharaoh hardening his heart. Martin Luther said that faith is saying to God, yes, what you're saying, that's for me. When you harden your heart, what you're saying is, no, God, what you're saying, that's not for me. Be like Rahab. Trust that what God is telling you is God speak, he's telling you this, and then act upon it. Remember that the most powerful energy in your life to shape your present and your future is what you love, and what you love is determined by the practices and choices in your life. Do not harden your heart. Don't keep on asking for more revelation in a different way, in a different verbiage, in just the right tone, because that's you hardening your heart. Verse 12, now Rahab asks for something. Let's read. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. Rahab is asking for mercy. She doesn't deserve it. She's a Gentile. She's a foreigner. She's a sinner. She's, um, she's in active, open rebellion. She makes her life and her living doing something that is not great. Rahab does not deserve mercy, and she asks for mercy. She asks for mercy. This is really key. This is really key. Many of you know that I'm a recovering alcoholic. And for many years, God would speak to, you, to me about my alcohol use. He would say, Andy, alcohol is death to you. And I'd say, I know, but I really like to feel. And I really am in a lot of pain. And, you know, I could just drink like everybody else. And I couldn't. There was no off switch. I never felt bad in the morning. I just wanted more. And my wife, my friends, God would speak directly to me audibly in prayer. And you know what I would do? I'd say, God, is that really you? Yes. But what was I doing? I was hardening my heart so that I could keep on doing what I wanted to do. Instead of falling on my knees and saying, I'm going to die unless you save me, God. That's asking for mercy. Rahab is so much better of a disciple than I am. Because it took me years to finally ask for mercy. And Rahab sees the situation that she's in, and she says, God, have mercy on me. And she asks these two spies, please have mercy on me and my entire family. And how they respond is my favorite verse of this passage. Let's read together. Our lives for your lives. Read it again. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully 
when the Lord gives this phrase, our lives for your lives, our lives for your lives. And, I, and, and this is the way that we deal with God lots of times. We strike up a bargain. You give me life and I'll give you my life. You go first, God. <laughs> you answer my prayers. You give me the parking spot at Trader Joe's. You make my kids healthy and give me lots of money and, and help me and, and do all these things. You do these things, God, for me, and then I'll praise you. I'll help you. I mean, I won't give a lot of money to the church, but I'll give a little. I'll, I'll be nicer when I remember. This is what we do. That's religion. God knows that you will fail at every attempt to strike a bargain with God, and here's the power and good news of the gospel. And when Jesus looks at you and all of your failures and all of the desperate ways that you need mercy and all of the things that are shaping you that you don't even realize that it's just this, this dirty, cloudy water that you're swimming in that's killing you, he says this to you. My life for your life. My life for your life. I will give my life so that you can have life. I will forgive your sins even though you do not deserve it. I will forgive you and wash you clean even when you don't know that you need it. I will lay down my life so that you can have everything I have earned and deserve. My life for your life. Now we could end the sermon there. And that'd be good. But I want to I tell you one last thing about Rahab. See, this transformed Rahab's life when she heard the gospel, when she heard about God and she put her faith in God, Jericho would be destroyed. Rahab would be spared. Her entire family would be spared. And then Rahab would marry a wonderful Jewish boy. Maybe one of the spies. We don't know. And, uh, and Rahab and this amazing Jewish boy have lots of kids. And their oldest son is formed and shaped by Rahab's perspective. Rahab teaches her son that when you look at a woman, you don't look at her with an eyes of object. You don't try and use her up as though she's just there for your entertainment. You would value her and love her, even if she's an outcast, even if she's not what you think is pretty or worthy of love or admiration, even if she's a foreigner, even if her status isn't up to snuff. You look at her and you love her and you treat her with dignity and respect and kindness because that's what this... Jewish guy did. That's what God did with Rahab, and Rahab passed that message on to his son. So one day, her son is in the fields, and he sees this widow, this foreign Moabite woman, come along, and she's starving. And, her, and Rahab's son says, eat, glean from the fields, take, take it. And gets to know this amazing woman. She says, what's your story? And this woman says, well, my husband died, and and, and I'm here with my mother-in-law, and, and we're just trying to survive. And Rahab's son, his name is Boaz. And Boaz says to this Moabite foreigner woman who's starving, I'll love you. I'll help you. I'll care for you. I'll bless you. Because that's exactly what God has done for Rahab and what Rahab has done for Boaz. And then Boaz does that for Ruth. And their great, 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 great grandson is Jesus, who does that for you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are at your mercy. Thank you for giving your life for our life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, 
for giving your life for our life. Heavenly Father, we want to live from joy. We want to live from a place of peace. And so we choose you now. We remember and recognize the fact that you've moved mountains for our sake. Your faithfulness remains. And so when you speak to us, we're willing to wage war on the sin that's killing us, to confess our desperate need for you, to trust you, and like Rahab, to risk everything to swim with you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, bless and seal all the good things that you've done in the hearts of these precious saints here today. I pray against all the enemies that the plans to rob and steal and destroy on the way home this afternoon. I pray, God, that you would plant the good news of the gospel into the hearts of these precious ones. May it grow into a strong and mighty tree that would bear much fruit in their lives. As we sing, Holy Spirit, minister to our hearts. And all God's people say, Amen.